I'm Carrie Miller. Each week, I have a brand new episode of Big Books and Bold Ideas, a show where readers meet writers. You can catch it on Fridays or stream it anytime you're ready to listen. But every week, we also give you a deep track, a conversation with a writer from the archives. Now, you may hear a writer whose work gives context to the fresh episode, or you may hear a previous show with the same author. And I hope that will give you a sense of the arc of the writer's creative expression. You're here because you care about books and reading. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Carrie Miller. This is NPR News, now Dream Country. Reading a novel can change the way you see the world. Richard Powers' new novel, Overstory, did that for me. Writing one can change the author's life. That's what happened to author Shannon Gibney when an experience as a new college graduate 20 years ago would be the catalyst for the novel that is being published this month. The novel is titled Dream Country. It's a great read. Put it on your fall reading list. And Shannon Gibney joins me in the studio. Welcome. Really great to have you here. Thank you for having me, Carrie. So writer uh, Julie Schumacher was in the studio last week and we started ruminating on those what-if passages in your life. What if that teacher hadn't told me that I had this gift for this? Or what if I'd gone to that different college and gotten in with a different group of friends? You have that. You have that experience. It, I mean, that goes all the way back 20 years, Yes. right? Yes. Okay, well, tell me about it. Well, yeah. So I was lucky enough uh, to be a new college grad and um, got this fellowship to – um, investigate relationships between continental Africans and African Americans, um, which was something that had fascinated me for a long time. But you know, as a creative writer, to look for for stories of that, so I got this fellowship to West Africa. May I just interrupt and say this is a big deal? This award at yeah. Carnegie Mellon, yeah, they only yeah. give it to one person. Yeah, okay, yeah, just, yeah. just to say, okay, okay. thank you. Oh. I have my PR people everywhere. I always say <laughs> <laughs> thank All you. Right. So yeah, so. Um, was thrilled to get it and was there for um, about a year. And um, this was some years ago. You know, I'm a woman of a certain age now. Um, and and so um, I stumbled really into this refugee camp, this Liberian refugee camp, Kamo Buddha Burim. Um, right outside of Accra, Ghana, and um, that, stumbled in. How would you would you tell me how that happened? Um, you know, I was. Staying with um, some friends and acquaintances um, that, you know, it's sort of like this uh, tumbling um, rock, you know, uh, where phenomenon where it's like, you know, you meet somebody and then they meet somebody else and then they, they tell you about this. Oh, and have you heard of this and whatever. And um, when you're 23, 22 and you're traveling um, and you're in a place for a year um, that's not your home and your job is just to be open, you know, you have no other things pulling on you. You know, I travel now. I've got two young children. It's like, okay, no, nah, I can't go over there to that cool noodle shop because I got to get back to my right. <laughs> to my kids. Um, and so they were like, you know, somebody I met was just like, well, have you been to this refugee camp? And I was like, no, I I, I didn't even know it existed. Um, and then they were telling me about the Liberian Civil War. Um, this was um, 97, 98. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I, I didn't know anything about that. Um, and so I stepped on to the refugee camp and, of course, saw the Liberian flag, which um, is modeled on the American flag. And um, but, it, you know, it, it has one star. And it, I didn't know this till I read the note at the end of your book. N- no, I mean, that. so many of us don't know that. I mean, this also has to do with sort of, um, you know, the way that American history is told, the way it's taught, um, the way it's not taught. Right. Um, and um, I mean, my brain exploded when my friends were like, uh, that is the Liberian flag. You are an African-American. How do you not know your people's history of founding um, Liberia uh, in the 19th century. It was founded by um, mostly former African-American slaves. 10,000 or mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Who went back. Yep. I want to talk about this yes. American coloniz- colonial Col- colonization it? society. Thank you. Mm-hmm. In a minute. I just want to note also, though, that you were in Liberia at that point or, or in that refugee camp. Yeah. And outside time, of Ghana. Yeah. Outside of Ghana. Mm-hmm. I mean, outside of Accra, Ghana. I'm sorry. In Ghana. <laughs> so yeah. at that time, check me on my history here, but hadn't Liberians just voted in a government for the first time at the end of a nearly 25-year-old civil war? Um, well, the, so Liberians call the Liberian civil war – civil. War, I mean, it's, so it was a 15-year conflict, but there were um, – you know, all these 12 to 15 years. So there's all these sort of little breaks, right? So at that point, 97, 98, it was sort of like, you know, things were still in flux and there's some idea that things were going to calm down. Oh, okay. And so, but they didn't, you know, so it, it fell back um, into disarray. And I mean, at the end of the conflict, it was, I mean, some estimates are like 200 to 250,000 people had died. Um, and this is a tiny country we're talking about. I mean, I think the population of Liberia now is um, probably, a, a, it's about 4 million. Um, and, um, you know, that's roughly maybe a million more than the size of the metro area. Um, so, I mean, that's a lot of the po- I mean, there's hardly anyone who is untouched and unscathed by this. So you're in the refugee camp and you're, yeah. what, striking up conversations yes. with people who are willing to tell you what yes. they've been through? You're, yeah. You yeah. Know, you're, you're being a journalist in that moment. Yeah. No, I mean, this is the interesting thing about me as a, a writer, a reader, just a human being is like, I understand genre, but I always say like, I don't really care. <laughs> so, so it's like, and, okay, well, and what does that mean? That means that I am most concerned about stories, whatever form they take, whether it's journalism, I've been a journalist for much of my life. I've been a creative writer um, for much of my life. Um, I've been a poet. I've, you know, it's just, um, I don't ever really want genre to overdetermine or keep me from anything, um, any story that really calls to me. I, I think a lot of writers would say that. Yeah. Don't you? I mean, I and think yet- people would say that, but I know. And yet the industry (laughs) kind of shuffles you Mm -hmm. into genres. Mm -hmm. But so many writers feel that's restricting. Yeah, it is restrictive. And excuse me, I think you have to definitely um, work hard to not be pushed, you know, into certain um, corners. You mean within the publishing industry? Mm, Yeah. And also just within your own work. You know, you can definitely get into a groove of things where um, you – are comfortable doing something, you know something, right? You have um, a certain 
amount of energy behind the kind of work that you're doing and support, maybe mm-hmm. even. And so um, the machine I, kind yes. of cranks up yes. and supports the genre. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is this is interesting. I read the novel. Mm-hmm. And then I went back to read a bunch of uh, interviews with you. And then I saw some little blurb just the other day about this book. And it said that it was a YA novel. And I kind (laughs) of did a double take and thought, that was not my, that wasn't in my head. There's an example right there of how genre didn't matter to this. Yeah, no, and I feel like I really kind of fell into that genre. And I'm still, honestly, I always say learning about it because, you know, I'm 43. And so the, the, the genre of YA itself really exploded um, sort of after I was in the the um, the age that it ostensibly is um, targeted towards, although a lot of adults read YA, yeah. right? Um, and so um, definitely, I mean, this book has multiple narrators um, from multiple backgrounds. It, it spans, you know, 200 years, two continents, but um, you know, all the narrators are young people, you know. Um, but at the same time, I mean, you could talk about, I always bring up, you know, I teach Louise Erdrich's um, amazing novel, The Roundhouse, right? Oh and that has gosh. a 13-year-old narrator, yeah. right? I mean, Joe, right? And he... I forget that because that narrator is so brilliant. Yeah. And no, and just like so prescient. And so, right. yeah. And so, I mean... That we Good could argue example. that that's that, that I mean we could argue right that yeah. that's a, a why not and I talk about that with my students like what what kind of a novel is this right I mean this is a novel about the the roundhouse right is a novel about um, jurisdictional violence that comes after um, Native women are are raped and um, experience sexual violence um, and, and then the failure of the system to right. know what to do right and this right. young boy is like right. it's in his hands right but he is 13 you know so what makes that that's categorized as a straight literary novel and um, <laughs> my book you know in in a lot of ways is categorized as a YA novel um, I think I think that what I'm trying to get at is genre is fungible. And I think that um, also just my own um, identity, yeah. experience, and subject position, I identify as a mixed black transracial adoptee, you know, a writer, an artist, a teacher. Like, I, I sort of inhabit all these spaces that are interstitial, if you will, between the between spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in a way, it's not surprising that my work also doesn't really fit. I I can't. So you tell me whether this is true. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine that this story would have unspooled in any other way and had any less or more meaning if you had sat down to say this is not a YA novel and I'm not writing it as such. Mm -hmm. Um, Would it have been any different? Does it matter? I mean, I didn't set out to write a YA novel. But that is how it's being marketed. (laughs) Yeah. No, I just set out to write a story, <laughs> right? And this is what came out. Right and now then your editor is like, my stop editor, talking No, about this. my no, editor, Andrew Carr, who is I know fantastic. Yeah. And he his a lot of the work that he does is work that sort of pushes the conventional genre um, category of, of YA, you know? And I think that this also has to do with um, the sort of mainstream American conception of teenagers and also of childhood and youth you know like i mean the first character in this book coley flomo you know he's this teenage um you know 
Liberian refugee. Um, it takes place in 2008, Brooklyn Center High School here in Minnesota. And, um, you know, there's all these um, kids of African descent at this school. Um, and there's a, a big African immigrant population. Um, but there's also this big African American population and they do not get along. Um, and he feels really um, like he kind of doesn't belong anywhere. Um, <clears throat> his parents um, you know, got the family out during the war of Liberia um, and um, then had to completely start over, you know, like many refugees and immigrants um, here in Minnesota. And so they're just trying to, like, survive and make it. Um, but they also have all these cultural expect- expectations of Coley that don't necessarily align with his experience. This is something I noted about your characterization of the parents. Often when I read YA, specifically written as YA, the parents seem one or two dimensional. With your parents in this novel, I really did feel like I could see them from different perspectives, not just the teenagers, the the kids, with their own complexity and their own ambivalence mm-hmm. and their own needs, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. to figure this out. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I have a lot of compassion for Coley's parents. You I do. Mean, I do. Yeah. I have a lot of compassion. I mean, even the father who is really a difficult person and really hard and really like unfair to Coley. He, he's left the fa- the father has left the family. Uh, he's with another woman. Mm-hmm. He kind of drops in and out mm-hmm. of Coley's life mm-hmm. to mete out some discipline and mm-hmm. then goes away. Yeah. And, and yet, and yet, he is a he is an, an a sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. Why do you say that? Why, why I, did you I feel find like the that? choices that he had to make were impossible, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I I, mm-hmm. I sympathized with it. There was really no good choice right. in what to do. Right, exactly. And you can see how those choices and the things that he faced, right, from the Liberian Civil War to you know um, immigrating to Minnesota and having to start over. Right, this is a man who um, had a master's degree, right? right, and and taught at this university in Liberia. But then he gets here, and it doesn't matter, right? He just has to like start over um, in menial jobs, basically, because he has to feed his family. Um, and there's a lot of, I think, unprocessed anger mm-hmm. there. And he here's somebody who, in a different section, we see him later in the book as as a young person, wow. right around Coley's age, and he has this amazing. Um, dream for Liberia that it's finally going to actually be this democratic um, space for indigenous Liberians who effectively have been um, locked out of full citizenship um, for, you know, 132 years, right? I mean, 5% of the population, the so-called Congo people, America, Liberians, the 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 former uh, uh, African-American slaves who colonized um, Liberia all those years ago, 5% of the population effectively controlled 95% of the resources of this this tiny country, right? So he's, he's this activist, right? Coley's father. And he's, you know, he's like, it's our time is coming. It's going to come. And then what happens, right? Like the, the nation plunges into this disastrous civil war, right? And um, I, I don't know, spoilers, but, but you know, some other things happen Beware to him. Here. His, his heart is broken. I mean, the other thing is he is personifying, I think, in, in some ways, you probably know this better than I do, this idea that deep sacrifices were made and you don't have the option as my son or daughter to just fritter that away. Mm-hmm. 
Right. And that's a big burden to put on kids, but yeah. it's also a reasonable expectation to put on kids. It is and it isn't because he doesn't really understand Coley's daily reality. Right. I mean, that's the real tragedy of this book, right? I mean, for those of us who are parents, right, where it's like we love our kids, but we think we know so much of the time. Like, I know what you're doing. I know why you're doing it. <laughs> I know, like, what your schooling is like, and you're just not applying yourself and whatever. And it's like, it's not that that's not true. It's just that it's not the full story, right? He doesn't see Coley, you know, like, the the black kids, the African-American kids at school, you know, like, um, calling him names. And, um, you know, the first scene in the book is him getting, you know, hit by something that one of them throws at him. Like, he doesn't see um, just how completely violent, right, in a completely different way mm, right, his, his right. daily reality at this school really is. What his understanding of violence, that's the other thing that you're showing us is this: these different ideas of what violence is yes. and how he's really separated from the fact that that could be just as destructive. It is for Coley him. As it was to what he experienced. It is. And that's the tragedy of the book, is that it just keeps repeating. And I would argue, in large part, because they, they don't know each other's stories. They don't... Nobody is... Ta- There's all this silence. You know, I was talking last night at another book event about how, you know, when most of us go through trauma, our response is silence. And it's completely understandable, you know. Um, it's like this, like retreating, you know, sort of um, instinct. But it has these other repercussions, right? Especially if it's um, intergenerational. Were you talking about what's happening right now in in our political arena? Or did you? I mean, (laughs) as you're saying this, I'm thinking this is part of the misunderstanding of women who are coming forward. And I don't just mean with the Kavanaugh thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, with why didn't they say anything about this? Mm -hmm. Why has it taken 20 Mm -hmm. years to tell the story? Mm -hmm. That's part of the reason. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And um, I think that, I mean, (laughs) what the book shows us again and is that um, history and time and space, it's all happening right now, right? Even though this is, you know, 19th century um, Virginia, this is 19th century um, Monrovia, this is 1926 in the hinterlands of Liberia. This is, it's, it's now. It is, you know, this woman coming out, as you were just talking about on the news, right? With these allegations right. against Kavanaugh. It's other women coming out, right? And... Um, people don't talk about things for good reason. They don't do it just because they're like, I don't feel like talking about it. They do it because it's, they, they don't talk about it because it's painful. They don't have the words. They're trying to just survive and move forward and move on. Um, and so, yeah, it's like you don't blame them, but it, again, it has these other effects. Shannon Gibney in studio, if you've just tuned in to the conversation, we're talking about her new novel, Dream Country, some of the historical echoes, the uh, the way it informs contemporary ideas. And she's going to read a little bit of an excerpt uh, in just a moment. Let's set the excerpt up. Um, yeah. Let's yes. talk about how what this American colonization society was. This was the yeah. idea during the antebellum yeah. years. Yeah. So Civil this War. was this was an organization, you know, founded in the early 19th century by white male elites. So 
um, a lot of politicians. Um, Some of whose names you will see on the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, this yeah. is the thing. I mean, you know, um, Monrovia named after James Monroe, who was a prominent member, right? And I mean, this organization, <clears throat> we would like to probably say now that it was fringe. It was not fringe. You know, um, this organization received money from the U.S. government um, or U.S. governments, right? State and federal. Wasn't Benjamin Rush's son uh, the physician who signed the declaration? I think his son was involved. Probably. With this? I mean, yeah. there's so many people you go through the list and you're like, oh, my. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know, and um, so these were folks, you know, many of them, as I said, politicians, business owners, plantation owners, slave holders um, who were really concerned with the growing, quote unquote, threat of the freed black population um, in the country at that time. And so um, they came up with this scheme to, quote unquote, <laughs> send them back right, uh, to West Africa. Um, and um, as you said, I mean, they sent, um, you know, 10,000, 14,000, a ton of folks back um, on on ships, um, mostly during um, the 19th century. But the organization, I mean, it, it didn't disband until I believe like the 1960s, even though it wasn't active, obviously, I, at that point. But. I think we should also say that this was, and, and you you allude to this, or you put characters right in the middle of this, this was a subject of debate. Oh yes, among Black yes. Americans, some yes. people believed they had to give up on America, yes. and this might be the only way. Yes, right to live a fulfilled life. I mean, that's one of the things that I hope that the book shows too is that you know Black people around the globe, African diasporic people, and definitely African Americans, it it's not a monolithic experience, and we don't. We've never had monolithic views on our experience. There was huge debate, you know, among um, African-Americans about this scheme. And actually, most African-Americans, um, including David Walker, um, who, you know, if you haven't read David Walker's appeal, I mean, he was just, I mean, really uh, an amazing um, orator about um, black liberation and whatnot. And I have a quote by him in the book, actually, that opens up this 19th century section. But they they were not fooled by this ACS, American Colonization Society scheme. Um, they were just like, um, this is not going to get us where we need to be um, where we deserve to be, um, given what we have been forced <laughs> to contribute to this country. Um, and we're not leaving. You know, most freed blacks were like, no. Right. But this character, Yasmin Wright, right, in this section, she is a widower. She's got four young children. It's 1828. Yes. Right? She has to decide. She's got to decide. Like, you know, she takes what she does is she really takes a clear eyed, I think, from her perspective, look around, right, at um, the conditions of black folks um, in and around Norfolk, where she's, um, where, where her family is. Um, and she's got a baby, Lainey. She's got Nolan, who's six. She's got li- uh, little George, who's 12. And then she's got an almost grown son, um, who's around 18, big George. And she's like, I'm not seeing it. I am not, I have no confidence, actually, that this country is actually going to um, give me and my family and my children, especially um, the kinds of opportunities um, or any kind of equal citizenship. um, Rise to its better angels, right? As as she doesn't believe that. 
And she has no reason to. Right. I mean, they, they, right. they, there's a scene in the book where they're walking from this Quaker plantation where, um, they have lived all their lives and worked and they witness, uh, uh, you know, uh, they, they witness a slave auction, you know, and <laughs> she's just like, yeah, this place is not going to change. Would you read a little bit from yeah. this section? This is yeah. where she is about to board the ship. She's made the decision. She's about to board the ship with her children for Liberia. And her young son suddenly realizes kind of what this is going to mean. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mama, I don't want to go no more, said little George, wiping away the tears that streaked across his cheeks. Ain't it all right for us to stay here now? This place is so much better than Master Scott's. No need for us to get in the ship. Yasmin pulled him into her side, hugging him as they headed toward the walkway onto the ship. My George... There's so many wonders on the other side, wonders we can't even imagine yet. Plus, we're going to have our own house, our own garden, and we're going to find us some new friends. Little George nodded reluctantly, clearly trying to get on board with his mother's plan. I don't want a new home, Nolan said stubbornly at her other side. Besides, Melina says you can only ever have one home, and this is ours. Yasmin laughed. You be home when you're with your family, she said firmly the phrase her father had told her so many days of her life solid in her mouth, and we be with one another, always. She stopped to kiss the top of Nolan's head, then turned around for one last look at the bustling port of Norfolk, at the men and women selling fish at the docks, at the filthy shipyards and the equally filthy men who built the ships that sailed in and out of port each day, at the haughty whites who knew they were better than the coloreds, and the poor whites who knew they were too. She looked finally at the army of coloreds walking behind their masters, walking alone to complete some mundane task, at the colored children who were doomed to follow in their footsteps, and whispered, goodbye. Shannon Gibney reading from her new novel, Dream Country. That passage, I, I'm sure, deliberately echoes what we were talking about a little earlier with a parent having to make a decision and a sacrifice for their child's future mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. how that's reversed mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. what we're learning about Kali and his parents at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, for them, it's very similar, I think, to what goes through Yasmin's mm -hmm. mind and heart in that right. moment, which is I'm saving my child. I mean, from a Western point of view, um, this idea, you know, I first heard about it when, you know, from my Liberian family, I was uh, married to a Liberian for eight years. Um, and I kept on hearing these stories of these teenage boys that were sent back to Liberia because, you know, in the words of their their family members, primarily their parents, like they were just out of control. Um, and they felt like they were really going to die if they stayed where they were um, in the United States and their schools, et cetera. Um, and again, as a Westerner, um, as a cultural outsider, I mean, this was just an anathema to me. I did not understand it at all. Um, and then I really, um, you know, I started talking to more folks. Um, there were two young men who, I mean, I said this last night too, you know, my name is on the book, right? But it's like, I mean, a project like this, a book like this, um, it, that so many people 
have contributed to the book. So many people have been so generous <laughs> with their with sharing their stories to mm-hmm. me with me um, that I feel like it, it is my book, but it's also not my book. It's so many other people's books. So these young men told me, you know, um, one in Monrovia, Liberia, um, when we were there about two and a half years ago, was actually deported at 19 for selling drugs. Um, and then another one um, who, by all intents and purposes, is a successful a success story, um, was getting into all kinds of trouble um, here in Minnesota. And his his mother didn't know what to do, sent him back. He was there for five years, um, came back when he was about 20, got this great scholarship to this um, state school, a sports scholarship, and was about to graduate. Um, but I mean, both their stories were very complicated and they had a lot of anger, you know, and, and I think from my, my point of view, rightfully so. I also understand their parents' point of view though, you know, um, they don't understand the American school system. Um, I know as a black parent, not an African immigrant parent, but I know as a black parent of black children, um, you do feel like these schools are out to kill your children sometimes. I mean, you really do. And so um, be- just simply because they're black. Um, and um, and then to have the added layer of um, not sharing the dominant culture, right, um, is, is, is a whole other thing. Um, and so I, I do feel like Coley's parents really believe, like, they are saving his life by sending right. him to Liberia. Now, as he doesn't agree. Yasmin believes as well. She's getting mm-hmm. on the ship. Yes. Can I say that uh, without, again, revealing this, the choice you made about what would happen to Coley mm-hmm. was unexpected and pretty delightful. How do you say more about that? At the very at, at the what end. What he becomes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you resisted, I think, the what might have been a temptation to say, ta-da, and it all, and this, and this, yeah. and now you know his name. Mm-hmm. He comes back to live a pretty ordinary life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. But Liberia yeah. is is good and bad for him, mm-hmm. but it's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean... <sighs> <laughs> By his uh, sister's point of view, from his sister's point of view, um, it's it, it was not necessarily the right thing to do. Right. Um, and by Coley's point of view, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But what about the objective observer kind of looking in on this family? Right. I mean, and, and I think that's another thing that the, the, the novel asks us. Are there any objective observers? You know, um, we can say that one... Cully's alive, right? I mean, there's, there's, there is that one line that his father says before right. they send him. Up. He can be mad at us, but he'll be alive, right? You know, um, so I think by that standard, yes. Um, by the standard that, yeah, he's like a professional, he's been educated, you know, he's well adjusted, you know, sort of by these like very, you know, sort of like global Western white standards, like he's good, right? But the problem is that his sister is bringing up is that their family is just sort of like a train wreck now. I mean, there's nobody talks period, but certainly nobody talks about all these chasms and all this violence and all these things that have happened. There's no through line. There's no story, which is why she spends her, you know, she spends like three years of her life writing this story because she's like, I can't live like this. I can't not have, um, some kind of semblance of a story and narrative that is um, 
informing me about why the people I'm supposedly closest to in the world, like why we don't, we don't understand each other. We don't know each other. Um, So in that sense, it's like, it's not a happy, it's not a happy story, but it's interesting to me that you say that like everything is not resolved. I think that that is a really common response of, as I've done, um, the more events I do and the more people I talk to with the book being out in the world now, so people right. are like, well, I like this book because it doesn't, it's not like this easy resolution. No, absolutely. I, I have to, I've been looking forward to asking you about something that you wrote, uh, and I, I don't want to miss a chance to do this. You wrote a piece for Writer's Digest a few years ago <laughs> in which yeah. you wrote about the seven things that you'd learned so far about uh, being a writer. Yes. And you really tried to dispel the romance of writing. Yes. I find this interesting because you teach creative writing. You said, mm-hmm. the cold, banal truth of the matter is that day in, day out, writing is about as sexy as doing your laundry <laughs> or teaching that class or weeding your garden. <laughs> your creative writing students, th- there's something about the idealism of of imagining yourself as a writer and aspiring to it we, that we want, yeah. right? To yeah infuse those students and drive them on yeah where does this fit into that (laughs) well yeah yeah no I mean I think that um there's this idea that kind of you know well I can only write if the muse is upon me and (laughs) you know and I I, gosh I'm going to butcher this quote but uh, you know there's this great great quote and I can't remember who said it now but he was like you know the difference between um, seasoned writers and beginning writers is that seasoned writers write through the bad days, you know, and I think that that's, that's true, right? Like if you're constantly waiting, you know, for like, oh, I, you know, the inspiration and the right conditions and the whatever, um, you're never going to get anything done, you know, and then so much of writing, I always tell my writing students, whether it's creative writing or composition is revision, right? I mean, so. And that's about as unsexy oh. as the laundry too, oh, right? It is difficult. And then, you know, when you have to cut stuff that isn't working and you're like, that's my arm and I have to cut it. <laughs> yes, you have to do it. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. It's um, writing is um, I I did hear the writer Jonathan Lethem, you know, and he, this was years ago and he was talking about I think his father was a painter. And um, and he's like a very prolific, very interesting writer. And he was like, you know, it was demi- the process of writing was demystified for me very young because my father was a writer. I mean, I'm sorry, my father was an artist. So he was like, you know, other people's dads went off to the factory. My dad like went to his studio and like shut the door and then, you know, emerged, you know, six or eight hours later or whatever. Um, and so it was just is like. No, this is something you just you do. You put the time in, you put the energy in. Um, obviously, you know, you do it because you love it, right? Because it's so hard. Um, and artists we know don't get generally a lot of um, positive reinforcement from the, from whatever communities they're in. Um, yeah. I hope you're getting lots for the novel. I am. Shannon, thank you for spending the hour with me. Thank you so much. Good to have you here. Shannon Gibney's new novel is called Dream Country. Put it on your fall reading list.